I'm Josh. I'm Joe, and this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where your hosts take turns challenging each other to browse a unique section of the video store and select a film in under one minute. If a title is not selected in time, we'll have to hit the video Dropbox and defer to what's in the basket. If you don't remember or weren't listening last episode, our basket was full of James Bond films, but we decided on A View to a Kill. So, Josh, I was actually surprised. I didn't realize you had seen as many Bond films as you listed. Do you know how many offhand that you've seen? Um, I have to do a quick count. Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies, Casino Royale, and what's what comes after Casino Royale? Uh, Quantum of Solace. Quantum of Solace, Skyfall. I saw that, and then I saw Skyfall. That All was right. the last one, so seven. You didn't see uh, World Is Not Enough or Die Another Day? The strange thing is I have not. You're missing you're missing Denise Richards and Madonna. I know, I know, I know, I know. And that's the thing, like I remember when it came out and everybody was like, Camp. Like it is the like <laughs> camp fest, especially die another day. But I don't know. Like I feel like I've seen parts of the world is not enough and never got around to seeing it. And so I've always had this idea of just going through and starting from square one and starting them all in order and, and just taking my time to get through them. Mm-hmm. I just Oh, I, I lied. I did see Dr. No, too, because I try attempted. That's the first one, right? Oh, yeah. And I attempted to do this, and that was the first one in the series, and then I didn't make it past Dr. No. <laughs> yeah, I will say, like, Dr. No is a terrible place to start for James Bond. Like, I've come to finally really appreciate it for its, like, simplicity and minimalism and the sets and everything. But, man, for the longest time, I could not handle that movie. Who, uh, Who's the sexiest Bond, in your opinion? Do you have one? In my opinion... You know, I for the longest time, even though I again I haven't seen all of them, I just had eyes for um Timothy Dalton. And I I can't explain it. Like in, in any movie that era, when every time I saw Timothy Dalton, he like kind of made my heart beat a little faster than it should. And I, I never could understand why. But Pierce Brosnan's good, but I have to say, again, just based off this one film, like Roger Moore was doing it for me in this. And I know it was his last one and he's older, but I was like, okay, I get it. I never thought looking at Roger Moore from the outside without seeing him play Bond, I never was like, yes, that he's doing it for me. <laughs> but just sort of his little quips and little one-liners and just kind of his suave attitude, I was like, yeah, I get it. I, I get why people like Roger Moore. I guess that doesn't really answer your question. I'll have to say... Just because it was my era, Pierce Brosnan, you know, the early Pierce Brosnan. So how about you, Joe? I don't know. I see what you're saying about Timothy Dalton. His like that, just his his James Bond look that he has going on is the most like charming. deadly and mysterious. Yeah, that's charming. Yeah. Well, let's go back to your basket pick of A View to Kill. And I just want to start with asking why you picked a James Bond film or challenged me with a James Bond film. Well, when I was a teenager and really was like, all right, movies are going to be my thing. I knew that, like, all right, I'm going to watch as many Hitchcock movies as I can, and I'm going to watch all the James Bond. I'm like, this is this is cinema that I know. <laughs> because I started collecting movie magazines, and that was right when they were talking about Goldeneye, and then I saw that in theaters. So I'm like, this is an important thing. So then I went through all of those, and I feel that this series is really special, where... First off, like all of the entries have just a ton of behind the scenes trivia. So it's always interesting to dig into what was going on with them. And also it's just how it's broken up into eras. I feel like this really tends to reflect the culture of the time. And I feel the only other film series like that is Godzilla, because Godzilla 2 is also broken into different eras. And a lot of the things happening in it are a reflection of what was going on with culture at the time. Well, should we get into some lists? Yes, Maybe just roughly five of our favorite Bond songs. Yeah, this is hard, though. There's a lot of good ones. Oh, it's so hard. And actually, again, what sense does this make? I haven't seen all the movies, but I've heard every single Bond song. Oh, no, like, I, th- I think before I started watching them, I bought the CD. That was one of the first few CDs that I ever bought. But I guess for me, I mean, The Spy Who Loved Me, since that was my, that was, it's been like my favorite James Bond film since when I first started watching. And I do love the song too, Carly Simon. And then You Only Live Twice, Nancy Sinatra. Uh, and then Goldfinger and Goldeneye have become karaoke stalwarts of mine. <laughs> I've witnessed it. They're yeah. great. Uh, and then also View to a Kill. 
I mean, I remember rocking out to that back when I first got the CD. That and I do like uh, Aha's Living Daylights that came right after that too. But I'd put View to a Kill in my five. Yeah, the the Duran Duran song like shocked me because I remember like the middle again middle of the CD that I'm listening to and like in the order that they were released. I remember kind of checking out a little bit like. Some of those, like, I think maybe it's earlier, the Lulu song, The Man with the Golden Gun and all that. Oh, yeah, like, nah, that's not good. No. And then the stupid, oh, I'm, I go off on a rant for just a second. Yes. The stupid all-time high, I forget who did it, but, like, come on, you're not going to do a song called Octopussy. Like, you got to own this. Exactly. Don't make a song that doesn't have the title in it. Well, and I do appreciate that they kept bringing Shirley Bassey back for, like, multiple oh, yeah. songs. Because diamonds yeah. are forever. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> it's so yeah. great. Um, unfortunately, I do not have a... Oh, no, I do have a Shirley Bassey song. I'm sorry, I do, because I was going to say, it feels like a crime now not to have one of hers, but I do have one, the one that you probably wouldn't expect. And I have to say, props to you, too. I, I'm really glad that you picked the You Only Live Twice by Nancy Sinatra because I it just barely made the list, but I grew up in the 90s obsessed. My gateway into Robbie Williams was Millennium, his song. And mm. I had no idea for years that he was sampling You Only Live Twice. That's the... Oh, really? So the next time you hear it, you'll totally get it. So anyway, here are my five in no particular order. Goldeneye, classic. Mm. In fact, there's this gay club here in Minneapolis called The Gay 90s. And one of my fondest memories was it was a really slow, empty shitty night in this giant dance room called the Retro Room. And so they're playing the most obscure music that you would never play in a dance room. And the first song that I heard walking into the room was Goldeneye by Tina Turner. And I was like, that is me on the dance floor right now, <laughs> even though you can't dance to this because it's just, when will you ever hear Goldeneye played at a club? Okay, and then uh, License to Kill. I love that That's song. a good one. That's grown on me through the years. Oh, in fact, you've witnessed me probably karaokeing this. At a, oh, yeah, that's friends. right. Uh, my next one I absolutely live for is Tomorrow Never Dies, the Sheryl Crow song. Oh, really? I just, I love, I think what gets me in these, a lot of these are the strings. And that's why I love the Nancy Sinatra, like the, nah, 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 nah. and then that one, like the, like, you know, when it, when it starts like boom, 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 Ugh, it's so good, which is hard for me not to pick because there is on the CD that I have, I had no idea this existed until I bought the CD that has like all the Bond themes all the way up to the um, Jack White one, which I don't even remember. Oh, right. Not my favorite. Again, again, your song was entitled Quantum of Solace. (laughs) Figure out how to make a song titled that. (laughs) That was with him and Lisa Keys too, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because Chris Cornell was right before that. Yeah, both those songs. Yeah, not great. But there was a song called Surrender that was on Tomorrow Never Dies. And I don't know oh. if you even knew this, but it was by Katie Lang. And they said it was, oh. it was too good. They had like the battle, when I remember reading about it, is they said there were two songs that were in contention of being the theme, but they wanted the film, obviously, to have the title of the, or the song to have the title of the movie. So they included it in the movie, at, I think towards the end credits, just because it's that good. And it's, again, it's got this very like orchestral, like, you got to listen to it when we're done. It's so, uh, it's so good. That's not on my top five, but I'm giving that an honorable mention because it's tied with Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, Skyfall, Adele, fantastic. Mm -hmm. It is good. That's another great karaoke song. I remember being wasted at a bar recently and someone- Oh, wow, you did that one? I didn't do it. Someone else did. And it, it was one of those like, breakneck moments where you're like oh my god someone is singing <laughs> skyfall and she nailed it and then moonraker that's my shirley wow, Bassey. yeah i do like the other dramatic ones but this one there's something very like relaxing so yeah that's my list so what about i'm not gonna have much skin in the game on this one but do you have a favorite bond girl well i don't know i was thinking about this like do we count villains because if we do mayday is right up there near the top <laughs> Oh, God, yes, I can't wait to talk about her. Uh, yeah, Grace Jones is just unbelievable. And then also, if you're talking villains, Xenia on a top from GoldenEye, Famke Jansen. Oh, oh man. yeah, Those yeah, two. yeah. The Nutcracker. That's what you yeah. call her, basically. She's yeah. like cracking people with her thighs. I remember that. Can I at least just say that my substitution will be Ben Wishaw? as Q <laughs> for my pick because I remember seeing him in that and being like, okay, okay, this is for me. And he is openly gay actor. So, uh, okay. So then my, my last question to you, 
do you have a recommendation, thoughts, or want of a specific actor or act- actress or actor for the next Bond franchise? If I had to say someone, I mean, I'm on the Bridgerton train for Reggie Jean Page. And actually, on that same train of thought, uh, I don't think he would ever want it, which is great. He doesn't need it. But Jonathan Bailey also <laughs> wouldn't be that bad. Agreed. But, He's on my list. He's on my <laughs> list, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he seems so much more interested in theater and like not doing press. So I'm like, yeah, it's not going to work for Bond. So a few others that I'll just name really quickly. Sam Hewen, who is the lead in Outlander, like not just because I'm like, oh, he's hot and he's good and that. I'm like, no, I could see it. I think he would do a good job. A surprising thought was like Lee Pace, because I was also thinking of like other openly queer actors who could fill the role. And like, I mean, Lee Pace is sexy as hell. And I think it'd be really fun to see, again, like this openly queer actor playing a traditionally heterosexual, like dominantly straight role. But uh, another thought I had too, and this is kind of a controversial, weird one, but Brett Goldstein from uh, Ted Lasso. Yeah. I do kind of like that sort of smoldering seriousness about him mm-hmm. that I think he could do well. And then Joe, this is really going to set you on fire. If we had to pick one woman to fill the role based on the fun that I had in the remake of Charlie's Angels, who better to fill James Bond than Kristen Stewart? <laughs> because she has this great combination of that feminine masculine energy that I think would just be so fun to see. And like, it would never happen. It would never happen. Cause I was also like having a hard time with finding actors on this list because I think that they do have to continue to keep the actor British. And like, there's nothing worse than like American actors doing like accents when you know they're not actually like British, but she did do Spencer and she had that dialogue coach (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I think she could bust out her dialect again, her dialogue coach, and possibly do it. So, well, okay, should we get into the details of this film? All right, I think it's time to take a view to a kill. (laughs) Wow. What a view to a kill. So this is the last of the Roger Moore films. He did seven. This is coming out May 24th, 1985, $30 million budget. It loses out the number one spot at the box office, though, to Rambo, First Blood Part Two. This does make $152 million worldwide, but it, in the worldwide rankings with inflation adjusted, it is just the 24th highest of the 25 Bond movies. Oh my God. Uh, so this one, it was, Bond was on his way out at this point. So cast and crew, Roger Moore, his last movie, he's 57 years old at this point. Even he's saying that he's too old to play it. If you're paying attention, you can see his stunt, like he's using the stunt double in a lot of the farther away shots, yeah. uh, which is why I also wanted to shout out to Pat Banta, uh, who was Roger Moore's stunt double in three Bond movies. He was Keanu Reeves's stunt double in Point Break. He was... Pierce Brosnan's stunt double, not in a James Bond film, though, but in Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, my God. Uh, And then he was the stunt coordinator in Urban Legends Final Cut. Wow. Quite a career. And then our mainstays for the Bond franchise, we have Desmond Lewin coming back as Q. We have Robert Brown. He played M in four movies. Uh, And then this is the final film of Lois Maxwell as Moneypenny. And then the newbies. I mean, the drawing power of this film. It is Christopher Walken and Grace Jones as the villains. Uh, It's hard to top these two together. Uh, You also have Tanya Roberts, who was a Charlie's Angel at one point. She is the other main Bond girl in this film. Uh, You have two people who have Indiana Jones ties. You have Allison Duty, who goes on to play the evil blonde in The Last Crusade. But also David Yip shows up for a little bit, who is Indiana Jones's friend at the beginning of Temple of Doom. Uh, we have Patrick Mackney, uh, who is best known for the Avengers TV show, but shout out to your taste. He was also in Waxwork 2, I guess. He's in Waxwork 1 and 2. Oh, he's in 1? Yeah, he's in 1. It's, he's pretty great. Uh, and then we also have a little cameo by a very young Dolph Lundgren because he was dating Grace Jones at the time. So they put him in the background of like... I think, is it just one scene? I wasn't yeah. looking for him in other... Yeah, I think I love it. One. Like, I didn't even notice it until I was doing, again, like, I just watched the second time on Amazon and there was the trivias that kept popping up and it mm. was like Dolph Lundgren. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and, like, paused it and looked. I knew he was dating Grace Jones and it 
seemed like at that time, especially, like they were always in each other's stuff, like mm. constantly, like just cameos and stuff. So the fact that he's in this just cracked me up. A uh, little bit of trivia just for the cast. Uh, before Christopher Walken was cast, they were originally going for David Bowie. And then I guess they asked, also asked Sting and maybe Rutger Hauer. And then Priscilla Presley was initially approached for the Tanya Roberts role. Uh, well, just for the crew quick, I mean, the director is John Glenn. He did all of the James Bond films in the 80s. And then I just want to point out, because James Bond film, you got the costumes. The costume designer of this film was Emma Porteous, who, in addition to doing three Bond films total. She also did movies like Clash of the Titans, Supergirl, Aliens, and Jewel of the Nile. All fantastic films. Yeah. And then, finally, the theme song, it's Duran Duran's View to a Kill. This was the first James Bond theme to reach number one on the charts in the U.S. Josh, can you guess what the first James Bond theme to reach number one in the U.K. was? Oh, man, this is going to be hard. I want to say it's a Shirley Bassey one, but I bet it isn't because it's too easy listening for people. Go ahead. It is Sam Smith's Writing on the Wall. No! From Spectre. How was it possible, UK, that you never got a James Bond theme to number one before that? That blew my mind. GoldenEye should have blew all that yeah, shit like, out of the like water. How, or, like, or even Skyfall with Adele, because Adele, you know, like, knowing her popularity, like, that should have just done it. Just, like, anything. Like, why not live and let die? Oh, God, yeah, with Paul McCartney. Yeah. Again, like, like a, how is that not top wow. of the charts? Uh, yeah. All right, and then just the check-in to see what uh, Leonard Malton thought of it. Well, this gets two stars. He says, one of the weakest James Bond films, although he said that at the time, so, you know, like, weaker ones afterwards. So one of the weakest James Bond films saddles 007 with a bland villain, Walken, who wants to destroy California's lucrative Silicon Valley, a monotonous villainous Jones, and a wimpy leading lady, Roberts. And it goes on forever. Only some spectacular stunt sequences keep it alive. Moore's final appearance as 007. Well, we can get into it if you're ready. I am ready. Let's once again take a view to a kill. We get our iconic Bond opening viewed through the barrel of a gun as Roger Moore strikes a pose to the 007 theme music before we're whisked off to Minneapolis, Minnesota. I mean, a snow-capped region of Siberia, um, dressed in all white. James is blending into the snow mountainside as helicopters are circling overhead. And Russian soldiers basically are occupying the space on the landing below him. So he's trying to be incognito. And he uses a tracker and locates a snow-covered corpse. James is removing a heart-shaped locket from the body, pockets a microchip that's inside the locket, and he's immediately discovered, setting up an impressive ski chase down the slope or the, the mountain that he's on. He manages to ditch his skis and throw a soldier from a ski-doo, where his retreat is essentially short-lived because the helicopter overhead takes it out, leaving only a part of its runner behind. So this is Joe, when I knew what kind of movie I was getting into, because <laughs> James grabs that runner and uses it like a snowboard. And is he an early trendsetter? Did James Bond create snowboarding? This movie helped a lot to popularize it. What I read was that the stuntman for this snowboarding trick is actually the guy that created snowboards. Oh, that's awesome. Like the first person that ever created a snowboard, it's him like going down. So I'm like, I mean, I know there's stuntmen, but I wonder if they just made this exception for him because they're yeah. like, oh, you know how to do this. Yeah. And then the Beach Boys' California Girls starts playing as Bond's essentially like surfing down the snow at this point. And even in fact, like at the bottom, there's like this patch of icy water that's open and he glides across it. And he ends up ditching the Russians because they're on skis and they obviously fall right into the water. But he immediately takes out a helicopter with a flare gun and then essentially is safe and retreats to a hidden submarine that is disguised as a rock. I mean, I thought it was supposed to be an iceberg, but it looks really weird. It's not it, white. Yeah. It's, it's like not colored. Right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But um, inside the sub, we meet Mary Staven, who asked Bond if his mission was successful. And is she like a recurring character? Or is she just a throwaway? She's a throwaway. And she asks, you know, is the mission, was the mission successful? And I love that he just splashes a can of caviar, a bottle of Stoli, and then the locket with the microchip inside. And that's when Mary signals M, and 
James then asks her to put the ship on autopilot. And ever so suave, he makes his move on Mary, letting us know that it'll be five days before they get to Glasgow. And so they kiss and cut to our amazing neon title sequence, While a View to a Kill by Duran Duran plays. At this point, I was on my way to Mexico watching this on an iPad, and I was like turning up the volume and was like all for this opening sequence. I was like, yes, with like the zipping down of like the chests and all that stuff with the neon colors. It was perfect. So James arrives back at HQ and interacts with Money Penny. She tells him she's been trying to get a hold of him all morning and asks him what he's been up to, which he replies, rest and recreation. The trip back from Siberia took a lot out of me. Oh, (laughs) I'm sure it did. Bond meets with the Minister of Defense and M who are observing a demonstration of a new robotic surveillance machine controlled by Q. Which I think is the dumbest thing in the movie, but that's all right. It is really stupid. It's like a little mini Wally. And I love that James kind of makes a crack like, new pet for you, Q? You know, and he's <laughs> just like, uh, we get that classic, oh, James. But basically Q starts launching into an explanation that the microchip that he brought back was developed to withstand any magnetic pulse. And unlike the rest of modern technology, which could be wiped out by a magnetic pulse. So the chip, they find out was created by Zorn Industries, and M reveals that there was a security leak from the company recently, to which Bond then questions the owner, Max Zorin. But Bond is quickly shut down by the Minister of Defense, who explains that Zorn is a leading French industrialist and a staunch anti-communist with influential friends in the government, so it couldn't possibly have anything to do with him. Mm-mm. And James points out, well, the leak did occur after Zorin brought the company, to which M agrees... So we're off to the races. And I want to point out here, like one of the things I love about this movie, this is like the only time in the series when the whole Bond gang is out <laughs> in the field. Because like, why is M and Money Penny there? Just like, they're all hanging out at the horse track. Like, it doesn't make sense, but I love it so much. Because earlier, James was teasing Money Penny about this big pink hat that she had, but it's for the racetrack. And I just love that they're just like, yeah, they're just there hanging out, doing some surveillance. And I do love that Q and Money Penny are basically the only ones transfixed on this race like yeah. money penny's super into it she's like get that uh, go meanwhile james and M are actually on a mission doing what they're supposed to be doing and they're spying on zoran and this is where we get our first look at the young blonde christopher walken who i'm not mad at it and the divine grace jones i do love that m's like the name's mayday and james says ah dressed for the occasion <laughs> what a kitschy thing to say but i do love these clips we cut back to the race, see Zoran's horse, Pegasus, taking the lead, inevitably winning. Uh, Money Penny rips up her ticket while James is introduced to MI6 colleague Sir Godfrey Tibbet. And Tibbet explains that in all his years as a trainer, he's never seen a horse run so fast and win. He believes the race was fixed and mentions that a French detective is looking into it. So James requests a meeting with that detective. Meanwhile, Zoran's receiving his prize trophy, while Pegasus, his winning horse, starts to go completely crazy apeshit. And it's just like a really weird scene. I don't know how you felt, but I was like, where is this going? But all it essentially (laughs) sets up is like Mayday takes the reins and tries calming the horse down, displaying an impressive amount of strength. And I feel like this was their way of basically saying like, look at how strong she is. Because it has no rhyme or reason, really. Yeah. I mean, it could be like, oh, the horse is weird. Oh, Something's up with it. Yeah. Yeah. And then James hands Money Penny his ticket, and it's revealed that he has the winning ticket and asks oh. her to collect his winnings for him, and that'll take her out for dinner when he gets back. So we're off to Paris, where James meets French detective. I do love this. Achille Aubergine <laughs> is the French detective's name. Inside the Eiffel Tower, they discuss Zorin and are interrupted by a performance of a beautiful woman who whistles to a gaggle of fake butterflies. That are basically dangled overhead by fishing wire and poles. It is so weird. (laughs) Like, at first I thought her name was Papillon, because they say that. But then I forget, like, Papillon means butterfly in French. Mm. So it's like, what is this thing? But anyway, she's doing her little act. And Achille goes on to tell James that Zorin has an upcoming sale at his stud near Paris. And that the key to him winning can be found at this sale. While they're talking, uh, mysterious, I'm doing in quotes, <laughs> figure dressed in all black takes over the butterfly rod. And it is so obvious from the jump. But the oddest thing too, Joe. So the figure takes over one of the butterfly rods, whips it directly at Aubergine and like hooks his neck. And he like falls face first into his soup. But it's like, did that kill him? Because I just couldn't quite possibly think, was it supposed to be poison or what? Yeah, I'm... Guessing, I mean, like, 
I go with it thinking like, uh, it's poison. I don't know if it was supposed to be. It was like, yeah, you just get stabbed in the neck. There's barely any blood and he's dead anyway. And there's this great line where I think like the French waiter says like, s'il vous plaît, or something like that. And James is like, there's a fly in his soup. And then like just runs off. It's just like, God, that's not really helping you here. But anyway, Bond chases after the figure. They have this extensive chase up the Eiffel Tower stairwell. The figure basically uses the fishing rod again to hook James and almost throws him over the edge, but he manages to pull himself back in. The figure leaps over the edge of the tower, parachutes down below. So James then hops on top of the tower's elevator and rides it all the way down, hijacks a taxi, follows the parachuting stranger by off-roading. And essentially, in my opinion, there's some great gags of like Bond as he's driving because he's like going up stairwells and smashing into shit. He's like flying on top of a double-decker bus. I mean, there's a lot of shit until it's literally a half of a car left until he's just, it stops. Yeah, yeah. It's just like the front half of the car and it's like dragging and he's just sort of driving it around. This is one of the first of two Mythbusters ties that this movie has because it wasn't for a Bond movie, technically. They did it for the Green Hornet movie instead as a tie-in, the Seth Rogen movie, because they do the same thing there, too, where they like they cut the car in half and are still driving it around. So Mythbusters tested, could you drive a car like this? And they were able to, and it's hilarious, but you have to shift a whole ton of stuff around in the car. So I think it probably ended up being busted. Well, the stranger, essentially, as James approaches the Zen, like he notices the stranger lands on top of one of the canal boats. James follows suit, but accidentally crashes through the top, landing on a wedding cake. And I I feel so bad because there's all these people celebrating this wedding. And there's James crashing in, smashing the cake. And he just basically picks it up, hands them the cake and says, congratulations, and then runs off. But then our hidden figure hops on a speedboat and we realize Zorin's the driver of the speedboat. And the mysterious figure is revealed to be (gasps) Mayday. What? But I do love that it's a man of few words. Like Zorin basically says, so to her and then she nods very aggressively and then they just immediately both erupt into this like really crazy laughter like and grace jones is like perfect because her laugh is just like so over the top it's perfect so uh, later bond meets up with sir godfrey and m who lectures bond about how he was supposed to be discreet and that he broke the napoleonic code and they owed him france a bunch of francs for all the damage and james tells m about the upcoming sale at zorin's essentially asks Sir Godfrey if he can arrange for him to attend that tight security event. So cut to the two of them arriving at Zorn's estate. Sir Godfrey is posing as James Driver, while James' alter ego is Mr. St. John Smythe. (laughs) And our Mr. Smythe is escorted to the mainsail, while Sir Godfrey basically follows Pegasus into the stables and finds that the horse has completely disappeared. So he's confused as hell. But back at the sale, Zorn and Mayday, I Smythe, a.k.a. Bond. Um, and then James, after this whole scene, is meeting up uh, back up with Tibbet after the sale. And that's where one of Zorn's lackeys comes up to Bond and tells him that Mr. Zorn's held up, but he very much looks forward to meeting with him at the reception later that night. And then he also invites Tibbet, who's posing as the driver, to stay in the staff quarters, where Bond immediately just accepts. So James essentially begins to berate Tibbet for running off and not opening the door for him into the car, which Tibbet's like, what? What are we doing here? Oh, oh like, okay, yeah. Um, and Tibbet drives James to his guest quarters, where they're greeted by Jenny Flex, a.k.a. Elsa from The Last Crusade. And she offers immediately, oh, let me call a porter to help you with the bags. And he's like, oh, there's no need. My driver can get it. And it's like, what a bitch. Because then he turns to Tibbet and he's like, when you're ready, Tibbet. And it's like, <laughs> Tibbet, I love this close-up, is like removing the bags from the trunk, just aggressively throws them on the ground. So then we're cutting to poor Tibbet behind Bond and Jenny as they're walking up essentially like two flights of stairs. And like Tibbet has all these bags under his arms, over his shoulders, all of this. And he's like just dragging this shit all the way up. And then they go to Bond's room and he once again berates him to unpack the bags. And eventually Jenny excuses herself. And then the two of them start keeping up the charade until Tibbet finds a hidden microphone in the room. And James starts a pre-recorded tape right next to the microphone so the two of them can talk in private on, on the balcony. So Tibbet tells James about the disappearing horse in the stable. The two of them watch as a helicopter lands in the distance. Um, and that's where we see Zorin greeting the sexy Stacy Sutton, a.k.a. Tanya Roberts, 
um, who is escorted onto the grounds by Zoran. So later at the reception, James eyes Stacy going into an office. He tries to tail her, but an aggressively angry Mayday appears and turns him around. And I love that because that's one of the beauty of like Grace Jones' performance is she doesn't get a lot of lines, but like she has great delivery with what she has because he's like trying to like go through a door and it's like a big glass door. And she just literally comes from off screen and stands right in front of him and is like points like aggressively like <laughs> tapping the glass like nope turn your ass around like you're not invited here and he just is like oh okay smiles and walks away so trying a different tactic james joins the party outside and dons an, in my opinion an incredibly sexy pair of sunglasses like i want those but they essentially allow him to enhance his view through a window where he notices zoran hands stacy a check and then they both exit that office and join the party, accompanied by Mayday, giving James the opportunity to sneak into the office and find that checkbook of Zoran's. Gotta love these fancy designer gadgets because Bond basically pulls out to what looks like to me a Louis Vuitton like wallet, but it acts as like a charge machine. Like if anyone knows what I'm talking about, back in the day, you know, when you used to have to literally like carbon copy charge like charge cards charge on the charge. receipt. Yeah. That's what he's doing with this. I don't know. It's really interesting how that works. It's like just blank check because essentially then it shows exactly the information that was written down to like very thick ink writing. <laughs> but it, it reveals that a $5 million check was cut to Stacy by Zorin. And so Bond exits the office and is greeted by Dr. Carl Mortner, um, Zorin's breeding consultant. And definitely not a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, not at all. Especially with his little monocle. Yeah, like, come on. <laughs> Uh, James explains that he was looking for the bar and follows Mortner outside where he's introduced to Bob Conley, who explains that he handles Zoran's oil interests. And ever so discreetly, James snaps photos of Conley and Mortner with his pinky ring camera until Zoran appears and introduces himself finally to Bond. And Bond, I don't know what he's thinking because Zoran has to have had like this as a dead giveaway, right? Clearly not, but he basically says like, oh, do you have any interest in fly casting fishing? It's like, that is so specific, James. Yeah. Like, give me a He's, fucking break. Like, you are giving yourself away. He gives no shits about just revealing himself because even earlier on when he like, he has this name, Mr. St. John Smythe, but then immediately he's like, Mr. James St. John Smythe. I was like, are you just really bad at like uh, <laughs> improvising stuff? Yeah, he's actually a terrible spy with incredible yeah. luck. But I will say like, in this scene as well, one of my favorite line readings of the movie is James asking Christopher Walken if he likes horses. And he does in very classic Christopher Walken line deliveries, like, I'm happiest in the saddle. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. So Zoran excuses himself. And then our opportunist protagonist, ever with the one-track mind, eyes Stacy standing alone near the water, greets her with two glasses and a bottle of champagne. And he introduces himself and questions her about buying and selling, to which Stacy's like, selling? Oh no, I'm not interested in horses. It's like a very odd line, but I'm just saying it because it makes more sense later as we get into the plot of like why she would say that. But um, I do love also the quiet uh, orchestral version of the theme that plays throughout the film. I don't know. If oh yeah, I forgot to mention this earlier. Yeah, it's beautiful. Like they do it in a few moments throughout this film. Yeah, like the orchestra versions of View to a Kill are incredible. Like I love the emotion that it gives off. Um, so Zorin notices the two of them talking and asks Mayday to get him away from her. And she, I love this, literally steps in between them, in the middle of them while they're mid-sentence and tells Stacy, your helicopter's ready. And Bond offers to escort Stacy to the helicopter. But again, with the meanest look on her face, Mayday is, says, that won't be necessary. Someone will take care of you. And I love that Bond's response to that is, oh, you'll see to that personally, will you? Like, <laughs> oh, God. So that night, Sir Godfrey sneaks into the stable to look for the missing horse. And I do love this because there's this, like, giant freakout moment of, like, it looks, appears like someone's sneaking up behind Sir Godfrey. It's like a hand reaching out for him. And then you realize, oh, it's just James scaring the shit out of him. And basically, Sir Godfrey's like, oh, yeah, I'm convinced there's got to be a secret lab or somewhere around here and basically james is like oh you mean like this i'm like yeah. this button it's like what a fucking asshole 
And so they essentially, you know, ride this lift into the ground, into a hidden lab, and Sir Godfrey finds Pegasus and notices that the horse has had surgery recently, while James finds vials with microchips in them and comes to the conclusion that Zoran's jockeys must be using a trick whip that injects the horse with steroids that help them win their races. And essentially, it's like the microchip injects the steroids, I think. Science. Science! So, yeah, two men arrive in the lab, causing Bond and Sir Godfrey to flee. They're attacked in a microchip boxing facility that's essentially just one room over. And this, again, has some pretty great gags because they're fighting the two, like the four men essentially are fighting. And the assailants, at some point, one by one, get thrown on the conveyor belt and essentially are getting boxed up. And there's this great line where James is like, don't worry, it's all wrapped up. It's just like (laughs) so tongue-in-cheek, like over the top. I mean, these are those moments where you're like, anyone that says James Bond is not camp needs to reevaluate like (laughs) moments like this. So there's a brief kinky scene of Mayday. I don't know. It looks like she's teaching Max karate. Yeah, they're just sparring. The fight? Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. It's very intense because you think like she's actually pissed. Because she's not smiling again through this whole time. And he's just like loving it. But they're interrupted by security alerting him that someone has broken into the lab. So meanwhile, James and God- Sir Godfrey rush back to the rooms. And Max and Mayday sneak into Smythe, a.k.a. Bond's room, before he arrives. And so Mayday then has this deja vu moment, remembering that Bond was the man chasing her at the mm-hmm. Eiffel Tower. And rushes to her room to get dressed. And whatever she's wearing at this point is fantastic. It's like this really great robe. So she opens the door to her room and finds a shirtless James already just in her bed. And he basically is just like, I've been waiting for you to take care of me. Personally. <laughs> like, she promised. Wink. And she kind of looks back at Max and he shrugs his shoulders like, <laughs> yeah, why not? Well, and again, she's not smiling. She just kind of was like... Fine. And then, like, enters the room, disrobes immediately, rolls on top of him, and essentially pins him down to the bed. This is why I love her as a Bond girl, that Roger Moore starts to roll over on her, and she's like, nope, and just shoves (laughs) him back down, like, yeah. Yeah. I will just say that out of all the women that he's bed, he probably was not ready for this one. So, Smythe slash Bond is summoned to Zorn's study in the morning, and we get this great little interaction where Max is like, how did you sleep? And James says, a little restless, but I got off eventually. (laughs) But uh, Zoran takes a secret photo of James and finds out his real identity and then essentially starts bullshitting him and inviting Bond to ride with him later that afternoon. And uh, another fun tidbit, because of this scene, the CIA was then wondering, I'm like, oh, do we have facial recognition technology like that? And they were like, no. So then like that led to them amping up their facial recognition technology. It's like it's all because of a Bond film, which I'm guessing happens with a lot of the Bond films where they're making all this crazy stuff up and like the CIA or FBI or someone's like, ooh, let's do that. Sounds about right. Uh, so, okay, this is my other LOL tidbit moment. Sir Godfrey is finishing up. He had literally is just like using the tiniest little rag to just finally polish off the windshield of cleaning this, this beautiful Rolls Royce. And James comes up behind him and slaps him with a riding crop. It's so bitchy. And asks him to head into town uh, so he can contact M and trace the check that he found and hands it to him. And Tibbet's like, well, what should I say if they ask me why I'm going into town? And James like, tell them you have to get the car wash. And the poor defeated Tibbet just looks at the bucket of dirty water that he has and just throws it across the windshield. <laughs> and is like, God damn, like, I can't get a break with this guy. But in my opinion, this is the most heartbreaking scene in the entire movie. I did not see this coming, Joe. I know that a lot of people associated to James, it doesn't end well, but like, this made me really sad because Godfrey takes the car essentially off the grounds and goes to a car wash. And as the car is going through the car wash, we see briefly like Mayday pop up in the back seat and like grab Sir Godfrey. And then that's kind of the last we see as like the turbine covers up the view of what's happening. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, he's just like knocked out. But as we find out eventually, it did not end well for him. So we cut back to James who meets up with Zorin. And Zorn proposes that if James can make it through this horse course, he will give him either the horse that he has right now or just the prize horse that he potentially was supposed to be there to buy. I, I was a little unclear about that. I think the prize horse. I forget the name of it. Okay. I don't know if it was Pegasus. Pegasus or um, no, Pegasus' brother, essentially, is yeah, the other one that the, was for yeah. sale. 
So the race begins, and Zorin is at this point openly cheating. I mean, he's literally raising some of the hurdles after he jumps yeah. over them, extends the pit jumps, and then there are like other riders openly beating James with riding crops. And so finally, Zorin activates a chip that has been injected into Bond's horse, running him off the course, where he meets his Rolls Royce. And thinking it's Tibbet, he jumps aboard, but instead finds Mayday driving and Tibbet dead in the back seat. Oh. And that was like, to me, I was like, is he knocked out? And then James says, like, you didn't have to kill him. I was like, what? Oh, my God. This poor man. But um, James is knocked unconscious, and they drive the car to a remote lake where the car is pushed in. Zorin and Mayday watch as it sinks, and they start to kiss. And this is where James awakes and uses the air from the tire as oxygen. Uh, I was yeah. a little... I'm sure about this, but... Yeah, Mythbusters did test this as well, and it was busted. Uh, you cannot suck oxygen from a tire. The air from the tire is not oxygen. Yeah, it is Yeah, it is, uh, <laughs> not breathable. Okay, well, in this world, James does yeah. um, and stays under... In those 80s tires, you know? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it must have been those tires. And he's underwater until he notices, essentially, that they've walked away. And so then our next scene we see is Zorin meeting with General Goggle, I believe is how you say that. And this is where we get our young Dolph Lundgren in the back. He's not saying or doing anything. He's holding a gun. And Zorin is grilled about eliminating 007. And Zorin tells him he no longer considers himself a KGB agent. And Scarpine calls him a freak? I swear it's Scarpine. Basically, he calls him a freak. And is picked up by Mayday and thrown wrestling style. <laughs> it's so great. While Jenny Flex and the other goon girl that I don't know if they actually say her name, but I saw it in the description is Pan Ho, which is not a great name. But yeah, it's Jenny Flex and Pan Ho. Basically, Zorin's goon girls arrive with guns. And let me tell you, Joe, like this is another thing that I absolutely love about this movie because I was thinking, I'm like, there is, again, an inherently queer aspect of this film because I do love Max Zorin with his bleached out blonde hair and like all his goons are like these sexy hot girls with guns. Yeah. I have to imagine that like if I was a Bond villain, this is what I would be like. Like I would hire only these women, <laughs> these tough women and just seeing them in their like saddle outfits with guns. It just, I was like everything. So Goggle tells Zorin, no one ever leaves the KGB and that he will be back. And then later, Zorin is meeting with a group of businessmen, essentially in, a, in this blimp, proposing that all these businessmen team up to end Silicon Valley's dominance of microchip production. And this is another great scene because the Taiwanese tycoon refuses to participate and is literally escorted out of the blimp by Mayday. But it's like under the guise like, oh, sure, you don't have to be part of this. Mayday, get this man a drink in the other room. And she escorts him into this room. And then eventually the stairs that he's standing on turn into like a slide that like goes to the outside. And you just see this man like eat it. Like he just falls all the way out, out of the blimp and smack into the water of wherever they are. And I do love Zorn has this line. Anyone else want to drop out? So our group arrives at San Francisco, where we finally get the line of Mayday saying, wow, what a view. And Joe, what does Zorin say? To a kill. <laughs> Which, what do makes you mean, no Zorin? Sense. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, it makes zero sense. Uh, so meanwhile, Bond, also arriving in San Francisco, meets up with CIA agent Chuck Lee, who gives him the lowdown on Zorin's past and tie to Dr. Mortner, and explains that Mortner, surprise, is a Nazi scientist that experimented what? with steroids on pregnant mothers. That was a very specific detail that was yeah. very kind of haunting. And it's heavily implied that Zorin is one of the kids from the pregnant mother. Supposing so as a reporter, Bond meets with the Division of Oil and Mines, Mr. Howe, to discuss Zorin. And on his way out, he spots Stacy and follows her home. And Bond isn't the only one that's following her because we get a quick glimpse of a mysterious figure holding a gun watching him as James was breaking into Stacy's giant empty house. And then Joe, oh my God, he's climbing the stairs and we get like a literal horror cat scare, like jump scare as the cat just like comes out of nowhere. And it legitimately scared me because <laughs> I was not expecting something like this in a Bond film where it's like... <laughs> Like, you know, and the cat just runs by. I'm like, why? But um, there appears to be only one room in the entire house that's still decorated, which is Stacy's. And uh, she ends up confronting James with a shotgun. 
he introduces himself as a reporter, and then they're immediately shot at by a mysterious assailant. As more men arrive, and James essentially uses the shotgun that Stacy had, finding out that it's only rock salt. So we do get this great sort of bit again where James is like fighting around a vase. And it's essentially like that was confusing the hell out of me too, because I was like, why is he saving that? Like it keeps falling and he's picking it up and putting it back on the pedestal. And then like it's getting knocked over again. And so then he like hands it to Stacy, who then essentially is just like, oh, sorry, granddad, and smashes it over one of the assailant's heads. And then we find out later that it was her granddad's ashes, which is like, oh man. The men flee and Stacy then formally introduces herself. And they have this little quip about like, oh, you know, I'm starving. And she's like, I just am not, I'm not a cook. And he's like, oh, I'll make something. And then it cuts to like, well, not only her in like this beautiful, nice outfit, like she took time to change while James is in the kitchen making this meal. But he's like, oh, I made a quiche. And she's like, what is that? And he's like, an omelet. So Stacy explains Zorin took over family business, Sutton Oil, and the reason she has uh, nothing in the house is because she sold everything and used up all the cash to fight Zorn in court for control of her shares. And Zorin is trying to buy her out with a $5 million check. And all she needs to do is drop her lawsuit and shut her mouth. But she reveals she still has the check and assumes that's why Zorin's men came to sort of shoot out at her and James because they were trying to intimidate her to sell. But instead, she rips it up and then there's... Sort of the sexy fake out. Like, I was fully expecting this to go that traditional James Bond route. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, she's drunk. They're flirting. They had dinner. Now, when she's like, oh, can you reconnect the phone line? It's outside my bedroom. And he's like, oh, I'll be able to find that. And then he does and enters the bedroom and she's just asleep on the bed. And I thought for sure, not that he was going to be a creep, but like that he might like try to kiss her. But Actually, props to Bond, Roger Moore. He just tucks her in and goes his way and just sits in a chair and falls asleep. James is awoken by a tremor and Stacy in the shortest silk robe ever known finds out that Zorin's basically pumping from James is finding out that he's pumping seawater in his wells to test for oil, which I don't know how that all works out. Yeah, this is whatever. Stacy points out that it's right on a fault line and that it's incredibly dangerous to do that. So she marches to Howe's office to confront him and eventually comes back to James saying, he fired me. Uh, and then later the two of them meet up with Chuck Lee to get the CIA involved so they can make shit happen because they know that Zorn's up to no good. But unfortunately for Chuck Lee, he too is off by someone hiding in his backseat. But Stacy and James head to City Hall to snoop around. They're met by Zorn and Mayday who force them into Howe's office who is there burning the midnight oil for some reason and still working. But he's the only one there. Uh, Howe calls the police to report them for breaking in and then is immediately gunned down by Zorin. While Panho and Jenny Flex join the party with gas cans, uh, they start drenching the entire building. Bond and Stacy are escorted to an elevator where the power's cut. Like they're kind of lowered midway down and then the power's cut, so they're stuck in the shaft. Mayday pries the shaft doors open, allowing Zorin to basically light and throw a Molotov cocktail into the elevator. It ignites. And it starts to loosen the cables. But, as everybody knows, James is a master. So he essentially does climb out, escapes through the escape door. He's climbing through the shaft, pries the doors open. James manages to come back for her uh, using a fire hose to pull her out. And then outside City Hall, fire trucks are arriving to put out the blaze. Stacy is... I love this image, like thrown over James' shoulders. And for a hot second, I was like, is that a mannequin? Because <laughs> it does look very suspicious at first. But then there's a close-up of her actual face. You're like, okay, it's her. But um, he's climbing down the fire truck ladder while onlookers are intensely watching. And then there's this really odd detail of like this homeless man who was sleeping sees this commotion, like runs over to watch with all the rest of the people. And then as James is coming down the ladder, I think he like slips briefly mm. and then like catches his balance. And <laughs> this homeless man drops the wine bottle and like gasps. It's just such an odd detail for him to be like, oh, uh, I don't know. But he manages to make it down to the ground. But as soon as he's safe, James is immediately questioned by the police who pin Howe's murder on him because they find Bond's gun. And again, like Bond, use your brain. The police are like, is this your gun? He's like, yes, but... 
you don't understand. I'm actually MI6. And the police are like, yeah, and I'm whatever, 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 like not believing him at all. So he's about to get arrested, but James eventually sprays him with a fire hose, giving him and Stacy time to escape. He then hijacks a fire truck, which surprised the hell out of me. I did not think he was going for a fire truck. There had to have been a normal car around there somewhere, right? Like even a police car, but whatever. And there's an extended chase scene through the streets of San Francisco with an impressive bit with the ladder being unhooked and James swinging back and forth. And so the cops try to raise a lift bridge to stop him, but James and Stacy make it over in time. And shout out to Maximum Overdrive, a previous episode, because it's rivaling kind of that scene in a way where the cop cars are in Unfortunately, not as lucky, and start one by one sliding down the bridge and smashing into each other, including one, Joe, that is at the very top. Literally, the tires are hanging over. It is like the bridge is completely vertical at this point, and there is someone in that car, and then it essentially slides back and smashes into those cars below. But I'm like, that policeman's dead, right? <laughs> like, there is no way he survived that. But so next morning, James and Stacy roll up to Zoran Industries uh, so covertly in a fire truck. <laughs> and they managed to then steal a Zoran truck, thankfully, carrying explosives and poses workers. I do love there's this quick little scene with the guard being like, hey, and they think they're in trouble. And instead, he hands James a hard hat and he's like, it's the rules. Uh, I also love Stacy as she gets out of the car. She's in this form fitting overall with high heels. Oh, yeah. James has this thing that's like, because the guys, all the men are looking. And he's like, women's lib. Uh, so then both hitch a ride into the mines and hide under a blanket. And underneath them are piles of explosives, which makes Stacy very itchy. Soren and Mayday arrive and activate a bomb with a countdown while, and then lower it into a pit. Stacy finds a diorama, of, meanwhile, of Silicon Valley and realizes Soren plans to activate a large amount of explosives that will flood a nearby lake. That will trigger the San Andreas Fault and essentially wipe out Silicon Valley. Remember when this movie was about cheating at horse races? Yeah. Well, and that's my one thing, too. It feels like it just kept going. Like, it was just like, you thought this was this? No, it's actually this. Nope. Yeah. Actually, now it's this. And so got a little tiring after a while because you're just mm -hmm. like, where are we going now? Come on. Yeah. We're starting over. Let's just keep going with this. But Zoran and his gals... Discover Bond and Stacy at the diorama, and Bond and Stacy head for the mines, chased by Mayday, Jenny, and Panho. Our antagonists hit a fork in the mine and separate. So we got Panho and Jenny going one way, and Mayday goes another, eventually catching up to Bond and Stacy. Meanwhile, Zoran's demanding all the exits be sealed, and he blows one of the tunnels early, which then triggers water to flood the mine. Taking out Jenny Panho and a ton of workers, which I did not see coming again. I was just like, damn, they're dead? Because you see their floating bodies later. So if Zoran wasn't the biggest asshole before, he officially gets the prize here because all of a sudden him and Scarpino immediately begin gunning everyone unaffected by this water down with machine guns. It's brutal, Joe. And it's like, it goes for so long of them just like shooting these people. Well, and then there's even this scene where like this guy is hanging off the edge of like this cliff trying not to fall to his death. And Zoran just walks up to him, kicks him in the face, and then just starts shooting again. And it's just like, Jesus. Uh, so Stacy and Bond attempt to climb out of the mine to safety because they found sort of this opening that goes out. Mayday catches up to them. So she's like grabbing at Stacy and nearly pulls her down. But James ends up stopping her. Stacy climbs to safety, but James and Mayday fall into the water below and are kind of shot through the mines. And then simultaneously, we see Scarpino and Zorin exiting the mine via trolley. But, well, I'll get back to Mayday. Like, my confusion is that, like, Mayday at this point is still being a villain, even all, even though all this shit's happening. And she's, like, grabbing at Stacy and trying to pull her down. But as soon as she falls in the water, it's like, oh, well, now I'm, I'm, now I'm on your side. She does see someone float, like, a body floats by them. Oh, that's right. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up. That was Jenny, because she says, Jenny. Mm, yeah. Because we see her, like, she's face up, I think, that actress. Anyway, meanwhile, we're cutting to Zorin, who goes into this, like, little shack, the Zorin shack. It's, it's so really great. odd. It's so great. Uh, where they meet up with Mortner, and then they essentially, I didn't know how to explain this. It's like they activate an inflation device, which, like, pops out the top of the shack and inflates the giant blimp that they're essentially in and, like, raises them up. We cut back to Mayday and James. That must 
be right here where like she mm-hmm. sees Jenny and maybe Panho is floating there too. I'm not sure, but brutal. Uh, and that's when Mayday says, you know, like I thought he loved, oh, I thought that creep loved me. And then James essentially says like, doesn't look like you're the only one he double crossed. And there's like, <laughs> like a body of a worker like floating by. It's like, geez, they team up, head towards the larger, more concerning bomb. Which is hilarious. I love this imagery because they've been stuffing this giant cavern with bags of explosives. So like you see it, it looks like a never-ending pit of explosives with this little round bomb in the center of it that's supposed to trigger everything. I was like, how much explosive do you have in this? And like by the end of the movie, those explosives are still there. That seems concerning. Yeah. Well, and then my favorite part about this is like, so they're trying to defuse it. They get, they catch up to it to defuse it. Right. But they have to get the bomb up out of the pit. And so Mayday's like, James, why don't you go down and like, go get it and I'll bring you back up. And he's like, I'm too heavy. And she's like, no, it'll be fine. And okay, fine. Like we get it. She's super strong, but like, she's also way lighter than him. And like, not that I wanted her to go down there and like blow up or anything. I just was like, you know, James was like, oh, okay. And then like goes down and then he like hooks it on this thing and she starts cranking it up. And he's like, of course, being an asshole, like faster. Okay. You're asking this poor woman to like carry you and the bomb up. But like what cracks me up is like they get up out of the pit and he's still on top of it as she's cranking it. It's like, James, get off that. Like give the poor woman a break. She's lifting this damn thing by herself. Uh, So they do get it up out of the pit onto a mine cart. They try ditching it down one of the tunnels on the mine cart, but the handbrake keeps sticking. So Mayday tells James that someone has to hold it and rides it through the tunnel system. And James runs after her, basically saying, like, jump once she's far enough out. And the cart seems to, like, have picked up a lot of momentum at this time, too. Like, it's moving at a good pace. But she completely rides it all the way out of the tunnels and blows up. And again, I was like, I did not see this coming. I thought it was legitimately going to be like Mayday catches back up with Zorn and beats the shit out of him. And that's the end of that. (laughs) I am kind of disappointed that's not how it ended. But I I do think it's a pretty badass moment, though, when like Zorin's looking out at this field like, oh, it's going to explode. And then all of a sudden you see the tiny minecart come out and he just was like, Mayday. And then explodes. I'm like, yeah. And she's just again, just like, ha, 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 ha. You know, like her classic laugh. It, I got a kick out of the documentary that showed like the Grace Jones mannequin, like someone picking it up oh, really? and like carrying it across the field and then like putting it on this cart. And then you see the footage of it just like rolling and then blowing up. So poor Mayday, she sacrificed herself and Zoran's pissed. But uh, essentially, Stacy's standing like right there in the middle of nowhere, right? Handpick for Zorin to swoop down and snatch her up. So Bon is essentially looking up at Stacy at this point, saying like, "Behind you!" And then it's a gigantic blimp sneaks up on her and just snatches her. Yeah, up. and and Zorin like reaches out of the blimp and just pulls her in. But James thankfully manages to grab a rope dangling from the blimp. It's taken for a ride. Scarpine flies them directly over the city towards the Golden Gate Bridge, where James slams into the bridge because they're hoping. To basically slam him into it so he falls. But instead, James fastens his rope around the bridge, causing the blimp to stall. Inside, Stacy attacks Zorin, causing Scarpine to run the side of the blimp into the bridge and get kind of stuck. This momentum knocks Mortner out because I think he hits his head. Uh, while Stacy hits Scarpine over the head with a fire extinguisher, I love this. She escapes onto the bridge with Zorin on her heels. He grabs an axe. <laughs> And starts swinging it at James. And they're, mind you, on the top of, very top of the Golden Gate Bridge. And James ends up essentially knocking Zorn over the edge and into the water below. But I gotta say, Joe, like, this is a very anticlimactic death. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's anticlimactic. But it's still, I still love it so much where it gets to a point where Zorin is holding on. But it's like the big steel cylinder part of the top of the bridge so he has nothing to grab onto but as he's like slipping he just starts smiling and laughing and then just like quick (laughs) and then just falls it's like oh awesome yeah it's not really like a fisticuffs one-on-one epic battle for the finale but uh so yes at this point mortner wakes up he's pissed oh i love when mortner wakes up he like tries to get his bearings, but then has to find his monocle and put it up to his eyes. Yeah, put it on to see what's going on. He sees... I think he he just looks out right as Zorin falls. He's pissed, so he grabs a stick of dynamite and attempts to throw it at Bond. Bond, quick on his feet, uses Zorin's axe to free the blimp from the cables wrapped around the bridge. The motion causes Mortner to drop 
the dynamite and it's like literally rolling around at this point scarpine wakes up and it's just very slapstick because they're like fumbling around trying to get this damn thing of dynamite and naturally the blimp blows up james and stacy duck and cover and then james finally free with stacy looks down at the street below and says there's never a cab around when you need one or when you want one. So uh, later, M and the Ministry of Defense are gifted a Medal of Honor by General Goggle for Bond, who's presumed missing. And there's this whole thing about how, like, oh, the Russians never award MI6 something, but this is a prestige thing and how they say something like, I would have thought you'd be happy to see Silicon Valley blown up. And what does he say? Like, how do you think we get our intelligence? Like insinuating that oh, right. yeah. Silicon Valley. But we cut to Stacy's after they say that James is presumed missing. Here comes the dumbass robot again as it comes <laughs> through a cat door, enters the house, and it follows a pile of clothing leading up to her bedroom. Uh, we hear giggling until we find our happy couple in the shower together. Q reports back that 007 is alive and that he's just cleaning up a few details while Bond throws a towel over the robot um, before Stacy cries out, Oh, James! And we cut to an aerial of the Golden Gate Bridge. Credits roll and we get our theme song again. So that is a view to a kill. James Bond will return. So Joe, do you feel the film still holds up? It's still in my top ten. How do, how do you feel about it, this being your... Uh, first Roger Moore, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I really loved it. I thought it was really funny. I thought it was entertaining. I just have to say there are a few scenes to me that feel like they could cut. Like it oh, felt yeah. a little too long. I was never like, God, when is this over? But based on this, I'm feeling more inclined to go back, especially watching the Roger Moore films. What made me fall in love with Bond was the Roger Moore movies. So I, yeah, I mean, if you want to start going through Bonds, I think it's not a bad idea to go from Live and Let Die through, I mean, you have Octopussy, which is the second to last of his films now. Well, next episode, we'll be doing some in-store inventory, which means there won't be the usual video challenge. Uh, so instead, let's check in with our next lucky video store customer to find out what they've put in the basket. Hello, lucky customer. What is your name? Oh, hello. Uh, my name is Natalie. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Natalie. Hi. Welcome to the video store. Uh, before we see what you put in your basket, I had another question quick. Given what we've talked about in this episode, do you have a favorite James Bond theme song? Oh, God. It's hard to say because I haven't, I don't know a lot of them, but probably of the ones that I know. I mean, I did really like Skyfall when it came out, but I'd probably have to go old school and say Live and Let Die. Nice. That is a good one. I have done karaoke on that one as well. Well, because uh, that I actually knew was a song before I ever knew that it was a Bond song. So. Well, all right. Well, then I guess our big question is for our next episode, what did you put in the basket, Natalie. Uh, well, what I decided to put in the basket, I decided to go for something that I haven't seen for a very long time that I definitely mm. watched a lot when I was a kid. And that is DuckTales the movie, Treasure of the Lost Lamp. Nice. Awesome. This Ooh. is my original clamshell, the one that was from my house. So this is what I watched <laughs> as a kid. Oh, and I haven't seen that in a very long time. In fact, I feel honestly like the last time I saw it is when Joe and I lived together. That's how long <laughs> ago it was. However, I'm pretty sure we watched it uh, over a holiday, maybe New Year's. My mind might be faulting, but like I definitely remember being very drunk and not remembering anything <laughs> about it. So I'm excited to watch it. How about you, Joe? When was the last time you saw it? Um... I don't know, Natalie. Have we watched it? I don't no. think we've watched it since we've been together. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel it's like it must have been in the last maybe like 15 years or so then. I honestly don't remember the last time that I watched it. So I'm very excited. I can picture some bits, but not that following the actual story or how it goes. Me too. Yeah. I actually have it on DVD. I found it on DVD a long time ago, but this is another one that I haven't. I'm going to blow the dust off because it's been in my collection, but I haven't watched it since I've bought or owned the DVD. Do you know if the DVD has director's commentary? Or... Ooh, let me check. No, I looked and at least the thing that I found, it said it only had like a game or something on it. Oh, yep. The fine Scrooge McDuck's treasure game, mm -hmm. the DVD right. bonus extra. Well, you can try that and see if you find Scrooge. But this was, you know, I do remember this too, like. 
in all fairness, this was a movie that was notoriously only on VHS for many, many years. Yeah, and, I'm not even sure I knew ever made it to DVD, honestly. Yeah, I mean, because that was the thing. I'd always be on the lookout, and it does say the DVD is 2014. I mean, that's not that recent, but at the same time, like, given that we were living together around, what, 2004, five, six, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I definitely did not have this. It wasn't on DVD then, so... So next episode, we'll talk about DuckTales the movie, and we can also chat about all the other movies that almost were in your basket. Yes, there are quite uh, a few. So if you like what you've heard, please visit Video Dropbox Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to contact us, you can also reach us at videodropboxpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, be kind and please rewind. <laughs>